Welcome to the uh, November 10th, 2022 meeting of the Science Fiction Club. Uh, the next to final one of the year, the penultimate one, the, uh, oh, never mind. Um, well, um, if you want to keep to the traditions, then Roger has the first position. If he has a space bar handy. <laughs> okay. Somehow I became a tradition, eh? You somehow you did, yeah. The one I bring you this time is the one that I am currently reading. I am about 60% through it, and it is the world's best science fiction 26th annual collection edited by Gardner Desois. And I picked that up just simply because I am currently reading it. Right now, I am on a story, the one I'm in the middle of, I haven't quite figured out what it's really all about yet. Maybe that's because I haven't finished it. But it starts out, it seems to be talking about these horses who are roaming the plains, eating grass and interacting with each other and it's told from the horse's point of view but as the things progress <clears throat> it's not necessarily clear that they're really horses they talk to each other i mean they literally talk to each other with voices and sounds and all of that um furthermore their hoofs seem to be kind of a combination of hoof and hand. They can actually pick things up with their hand hooves. Um, you find out one had recently been born, which did not have fur and was shaped, um, well, it had more hand than hoof and all of that. And then along the way, there are cats <clears throat> that attack the herd. <clears throat> I, it doesn't call them anything but cats, but since they're attacking a herd of horses, I think of them as mountain lions or just lions or something like that. But the um, horses, actually, the word horse isn't used, but they're described as if they were horses. The horses fight back against the cats using guns. And by the way, the cats are armed with guns too. And there was some mention there about the cats rarely fire first because if they do, they usually um, are on the losing end of the gun fight. But they are out to um, eat the horses. Now, how this came about, i that's what I'm not really clear about. There was some mention of ancient ones who had some kind of a plague. And in order to save themselves, I suppose these ancient ones were humans. In order to save themselves, they somehow put themselves in animals. Um, seems like they created kind of a hybrid between themselves and the animals 
<coughs> the um, it's almost like the horses are human human horse hybrids, and I suppose they did the same with the cats too. And I'm not really clear about exactly what happened or how they did this or exactly what they did. And well, that's the story that I'm on currently, and I haven't finished it, so I can't tell you how this ends up resolving. But as for other stories that were included, there's one in which um, it's, well, there is a an observatory, so to speak, on the far side of the moon in one of the larger craters there. And it's a perfect place to put an observatory because they don't have to um, worry about uh, the light pollution and such, except I guess during the lunar daytime. And they managed to get receive signals from some alien civilization. They're not really sure that it is an alien civilization at first, but it becomes clear that it is. And the aliens, many thousands of light years away, are signaling that they want the receivers of their message to download something. And what the download seems to be compatible with the computer and we have two guys um, who are on opposite ends of the argument about that. One of them wants to download what's being sent to them. The other thinks that it's way too dangerous. And the one who wants to download it is so convinced of his position that he holds the other one at gunpoint. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, I remember that. Oh, you remember that one? Yep. While this stuff is being downloaded, I think it takes something like 17 hours. It's downloaded, and then the observatory is, well, basically destroyed. I think they downloaded something full of nanobots or something. Yep. And it proceeds to try to convert the whole entire moon into something. They... Um, launch an atomic bomb at the crater where the observatory was. Doesn't seem to work, though, because it's still converting the moon into something. And I don't think it's ever resolved exactly what it's going to convert it into. Or no, what not, not that I remember. <clears throat> Another story. I remember there was one where they cloned Neanderthals. The Koreans managed to clone them. And, well, as the Neanderthals grow up, um, they're not exactly like Neanderthals are usually pictured by anthropologists who study them right now. Um, they turned out to be very pale skinned. They had freckles, I think, red hair and such. And of course, they look kind of funny with their flat heads, but they are very muscular. And as they grow up, they end up uh, joining into the Olympics and they beat all of the homo sapiens. Um, 
somebody suggests that maybe they should have a separate Olympics for them. And that's kind of next. They decided that would be something tantamount to racism. Then there's questions about what do you call them? Some people were calling them uh, Koreans because that's where they were born. That, you know, they were cloned by the Koreans. Other people, for a while, they're calling them just simply Neanderthals. But as somebody points out, do the French call themselves Cro-Magnons? <laughs> so that's become kind of a forbidden thing to call them. And somehow they end up being called ghosts. That sounds more derogatory than Neanderthal to me. But um, I found that one kind of interesting. And what else was there? Um, yeah, there's some. There's a story about space pirates, where the pirates are, well, something or other that's not quite entirely human. There's a story about. Um, there's one called. Oh, that's the one where they kidnap that guy and. He's, he's they kidnap him and put him and he's on the ship and they take him. Uh, I think he was. Uh, um, oh, never mind. Yeah, well, I think you have the right one. Yeah. Uh, th there's another one, though, called Political Prisoner, where uh, basically this is the. Oh, it describes the traditional idea of where you would keep political prisoners like uh, it's kind of a labor camp <clears throat> kind of a gulag mixed with a um with a nazi um uh, what do they a uh, concentration camp and all of that except the aliens are aliens are keeping them pol political prisoner i'm not sure i like that one too well because it just it seemed to be just be Oh, a a uh, polemic against labor camps or something, and well, various other stories. I, I'll say this: um, it's called the year's best science fiction, and well, that's of course a subjective judgment. The person making the judgment is Gardner Duzois. I will say he has pretty good tastes. Well, he was editor of um, Asimov Science Fiction Magazine for quite a few years, so he had experience at it. <clears throat> but I'd say, all in all, he picks out stories that are quite well written, but you, they tend to be complex and you have to pay close attention to them or you lose the thread of the story and you might have to start over or something. And of course, he. this was the 26th annual collection. It was from, nine, uh, not 19, I mean, 2008. And he has a long essay at the beginning that uh, basically describes the state of the science fiction publishing industry in 2008. Uh, some of the publishers he mentions are already defunct by now. And um, all in all, 
<clears throat> some of the stories I like better than others, but all in all, I I, I kind of like these this series of anthologies. Um, I, I do too. Yeah, I will be interested to find. Well, I'm in the middle of the story. I will be interested to find out how these horse-like beings came into existence and what this is headed for. But not finished with it yet. So, well, there you have it. Um, Evan, you've apparently already read this one. Yeah, it's been a couple of years. So, um, yeah. Like, but uh, he's up to th he was up to 35 before he passed away. So if you plan to read them, you've got a lot of reading ahead because they're all 35, 40, 45 hours. 35 hours is on the short end. Well, I, I, who's the editor? Gardner goes Gardner. That's right. Didn't he die young? He was yeah, he was like 70 or 71. Oh, he oh, was no. uh, 2017. Some kind well, of stomach ailment or something. Wikipedia. There's somebody else I'm thinking that, of who fell off of the subway, maybe. I can't remember. There was somebody who, maybe it was a writer. And I can't hmm. remember, but I know Gardner. But, uh, yeah, and, and Gardner's, and another thing about Dozois is that some of his stories, you could you can argue a little bit about some of his stories, but he doesn't add, put in horror or fantasy. Uh, he tries to put in stuff that most people would consider science fiction, even if not everybody would. Some of them hard, are pretty hard far si off, out. You hard know, science fiction. Yeah, he, he definitely likes harder science fiction. Um, so there's no year's best science fiction and fantasy stuff <laughs> in there and uh, stuff like that. Um, so that's one reason I like them a lot. They're straight and they're big. So, I mean, you may not like everything, but there's bound to be some really good stuff in them. And I'll say, um, this. I'll say this, I've said before that I try to pick out books that I think it's unlikely the rest of you have read. Well, this time I'm figuring that it is likely that, some, that the rest of you have read this one. But the thing is, I was right in the middle of reading it when the month came to an end, and I'm saying it's a whole lot easier just to talk about this one than it is to put it on hold while I read another one. So, yeah. They, yeah. Another thing about Dozois' anthologies is that in front of every story, he talks about the author, he gives sometimes a fairly lengthy list of what they've written, uh, especially authors who've had a long career, but he doesn't include everything, obviously. But he gives a lot of titles, and he actually talks a little bit about the story. He doesn't give any plot elements away or anything, but he gives a little description of what the story is like. I mean, I mean, he, he, I, I, I really like these, and I'll be sad to come to the end of them. I'm kind of going slow with them. I'm on 28, and uh, so, or, uh, and, uh, I'm not even halfway through 28 and uh, I'll be disappointed when it comes to the end of them because he really, you know, and I like his end of year summaries. I'm not that interested in the state of the publishing industry really, but he talks about, you know, the novels, you know, he, he doesn't cover them in depth, but he talks about other things besides the state of the publishing industry. He talks about, you know, um, novels, uh, critical books about science fiction, um, some nonfiction books that science fiction writers or readers might be interested in. I found some books in there 
from time to time that um, I wanted to read. Um, and of course, you know, the introductions to the books, you know, to the stories have other titles by those authors. So they're just great anthologies for, you know, a lot of reasons. Yeah, and you so, do not you do not have to read them in order by any means. No, indeed. Uh, no, certainly you not. You don't even have to read the stories in order. They are not connected to each other in any way. No, you can skip around and pay. if you know an author you like, you can jump right to that story uh, if you want. I generally just read them in order. Um, Easier to keep but, track of what you've read that way. Right. That's true, too. That's true, too. And there are there are been a, a few that I have skipped from time to time. There are certain authors that I know I, I might even give it a, a shot. But, I'll, you know, there are a couple of different authors that uh, I finally gotten tired of giving them a chance and I skipped them. Robert Reed is one of them. Um but anyhow, uh, yeah, those are those are good anthologies. There's lots of them on Bard, but they don't have all of them, but they have a lot of them. Um, so, um, well, let's see. How about Martin? How about it? <laughs> hey, how is it going? Hey, Martin? You usually have something interesting. Okay, I, um, I'm just thinking I'm going to... I'm running out of where to find science fiction books. <laughs> mm. Anyway, I read something by Elizabeth Moon called Remnant, Remnant Population. Remnant, yeah, I guess is how you pronounce it. And Remnant? It, Remnant Population. Oh, I hadn't heard of that one. I scanned some books by her for Bookshare. When Ann Parsons uh, was alive, oh. she proofread several of those. She has a lot of, she has quite a few books on Bart. There was a whole series about this Woman and space pirates and all that. I forget what the name of it was. Vada's War. And that Vada's... exactly right. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. But this book uh, takes place on a planet, and the main protagonist is a an old lady named Ophelia. <laughs> and it's funny. A lot of the a lot of the names of the people are Spanish names. I don't know Elizabeth. I think she lives in Texas, or why she chose Spanish. But anyway. Uh, they're, they're a colony on this planet, and they were there. They've lived there for a number of years, and their purpose basically they were sent there by this company, and they're there to produce food and and ship it out to other planets. So the first part of the book describes her relations with her son and her relatives, and all that, and then they they. they they get an order from the company that apparently they're not producing enough or it's not worse than remaining on the planet. And they're going to take every, any, everyone off the planet and put them in the type of sleep that, you know, it's for the travel light years and go to some other planet. And she doesn't want to go. So she manages to slip away and avoid being taken back with, with her relatives and the rest of the colonists. So then you have a quite a bit of the book where it describes how she's manages to live alone and um, does gardening and stuff and, and knows how to operate some of the technology that they need, like, you know, the weather station and the electrical plant, things like that, and do the ba basic maintenance because all the economists were taught many different skills to be able to survive. And the interesting thing is when they settled the planet, they had scanned it and they made sure there was no other life on the planet, at least so they thought. But it turns out there is. And 
she comes across these aliens who apparently had come, I think it was bad, it was some bad weather or something. They came into the settlement to get away from the rain and she bumped into one of them almost literally. And uh, a good part of the book describes how she became friends with them and how she learned there to understand them, their language. And they, they were like furry creatures, very appealing looking. And they were very intelligent. They were able quickly to catch on to, to uh, how you know their the technology. And in the meantime, she was listening on the satellite feed, just generally to scan what's going on. And it was a apparently another ship from one of the from the same corporation went down on as far side of the planet and was attacked and, and, and killed. And it, it turns out it was by these same aliens and what they cannot understand is how they never detected their existence um and then it goes on and she becomes very friendly with them and they're getting along quite well and suddenly a surveyor ship comes back and they want to you know try to take her back and and they think the aliens are an enemy because they know that they killed the other people and she tries and stands up for them and finally the books end by by she becoming their representative and they um, are sort of put under protect or a protectorate of the of the Federation of Planets and uh, and they recognize their intelligence and the, and the fact that when they had killed these these the, certainly survey that came down they because the survey had killed their um, their babies they they produce babies in nests. And it describes part of the, in part of the book how she becomes the, you might say, the aunt of the babies when they're born in the vill in, in the in their in the village or the, their colony. That is the village where they were, where the original colony was living. So it's rather interesting. It's uh, I I found it to be rather enjoyable uh, read. That's Bard, right? Yeah, it was on Bard. Now that's not part of a series. No. As far as that oh, okay, know. yeah, because she she's done several series. I, I know, know two or three. I know uh, Marshall used to like them a lot too. Um, so and not all of those are on Bard. Some of the ones I did for Bookshare weren't on Bard. Um, when Ann and I did them anyway, I might be out of date by now, but um, back then they weren't. Um, and they were pretty substantial books. I don't know how long this one is. Um, I haven't. I, can, I have it right here on my Victor Reader if you're interested, but it wasn't that long. I think maybe 12 or uh -huh. 13 hours. Something how like many? That. Yeah. Yeah, not too. Yeah, some of the ones I did for her bookshare were like 400 pages and some. Some of them were a little bit longer. Um, so, but she's very popular. A lot of people like her. And she's very prolific. Um, so she, she does, she's done some good work. Oh, uh, let's see. Who should we pick next? We only have two people left. <laughs> Except me. David. Hello. Yes, I, I'm here. I wanted to you? discuss. It is an audible book series. It's not on board. It's by Nathan Lowell. There is a book on board by him, but it's a fantasy. It's like the wizard's butler, which is what I read, which got me curious about this Nathan Lowell guy. The series is the age of golden, the, the golden age of the solar clippers. It's set in the 24th century. It's mm -hmm. all about these 
clipper ships. They sail on the solar wind. I didn't quite understand that. They could have explained that better. And there's some sort of warp drive or jump rod that lets them jump between different systems. But once they get into a system, it takes them days to get where they're going because of the gravity issues. So I'm not quite, I didn't quite understand the mechanics. What I liked about the books, they featured a guy named Ishmael Horatio Wong. There's a nice uh, <laughs> hybrid name. <laughs> and he he does know, you know, call me Ishmael. His mother um, was a ancient literature professor. That's what they call our literature because, of course, they're in the 23. It's the year is 2351 when the series starts. He's just about to turn 18. His mother dies in a in a like a um flitter crash and he needs to get off planet because it's a corporate planet they have a like a confederation of planets and some are independent but some are corporate planets and he either needs to get off planet you know they're going to they're going to send him off planet and charge him for the shipping or he needs to figure out a way to get off planet and he does he goes to the space um, the space, the union, it's reminds me of the merge of our merchant Marine. And that's, I think what it was supposed to be modeled after the author, I believe had served in the merchant Marine and he modeled this whole series. There are six books in it. The first one is quarter share. The second is half share. The third is full share. The fourth is double share. The fifth is um, I think, I think it's company share. And the sixth is owner's share or I may have them slightly out of order. And they basically take you through the development of this young guy. He he goes in the first three books, he works his way up to what's called a full share. And he's, he's always studying. He starts out as a mess mate. He works in the ship's mess, you know, helping prepare food and cleaning up. And I guess what I liked about it was it's not full of BIMs, you know, bug-eyed monsters. It's not full of trippy aliens. These are all human-type people. And it's just how he gets on. I guess it's sort of a coming of age. And it's how he gets on, how at age, you know, at age 22, he's nominated to go to the academy, which is where they go to become officers. So the series jumps. This, this fourth, fifth, and sixth book show you him as an officer. And I just liked them because, like I said, he was an interesting character. It was an interesting sort of, you know, it wasn't, they didn't have lots and lots of glitzy tech. I mean, there's an auto dock they put you in if you're sick. And there, you know, there's this jump drive and there's all these different planets. So, you know, it is, I guess, you know, in, not intergalactic because they don't mention more than this one galaxy, but they jump all over and it it seemed to be a relatively prosperous time. They didn't talk a lot about wars and violence, which I was glad to hear. And I guess I just liked it because, you know, it, it just seemed he the guy just seemed to be likable. Oh, well, that's that's good. Well, the solar clipper, what are they? Are they are they using solar sails? I, that's what it sounded like, but I, again, I didn't understand it well. They use the solar wind, right? I didn't, I didn't yeah. quite understand. It reminded me, in a way, I've never read them, but I believe the comparison was to Horatio Hornblower. You yeah, know, the, that that yeah. series yeah. was. Yeah. This is kind of Horatio in space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the solar wind is is uh, a real phenomenon. Um, yeah, and they use it when they're landing, when they're getting into a system, but they also sounded like they had some sort of jump drive technology. Yeah, to get them. Well, yeah, because that's not going to get you yeah. uh, between star systems right. in you have to less get, than many years. Right. 
So, right. So you jump to the star system and then you use the solar wind to, to get to near the planet. Well, I should think huh. that, you know, they would have had uh, like fusion drives or something by that time that would get them there a lot faster. But there might mm. be cultural things, you know, going on or traditions. Not, he was Who just likable. He was, a mm-hmm. you know, the orphan sort of made good kind of thing. Cool. All right. Well, Sherry. Okay. I think you have. I am representing Liz tonight because mine is a dystopian. Oh, oh, oh! He's channeling Liz tonight. <laughs> yep. Um, it's called Extreme Makeover by Dan Wells, and that's no relation mm. to me. Um, <laughs> sad to say, um, the title of the very first chapter gives you a location, and then it says 267 days until the end of the world. Uh, mm. So right away, it's like, oh, well, we see how this is going to turn out. Um, the main focus is this beauty company, and this guy, Lyle, the chemist, develops a lotion, and he doesn't really know how he did it, but... When you use this lotion, it makes a clone of the last person who touched it. And Lyle is appalled and, oh my gosh, this is awful and this is dangerous, etc., etc. But the beauty company is thrilled because they see it as we'll get beautiful models and movie stars to touch the lotion and then sell it and people can make clones of these people. And it's only a physical clone. You're still yourself. You just look like these people. Mm -hmm. And they decide to set up clinics where they have blank lotion and you can come in and clone anyone you want. Like if you want to clone yourself back, if you are a man and you want to become a woman, you can do that. Um, Lyle finds somebody who's willing to do some good with this, i.e. if somebody has a disease, they can clone, use the lotion to clone somebody who does not have the disease and the person is cured. And this also raises the issue of immortality. If you just clone yourself, you're cloning yourself at a certain age when you're healthy and your body will just keep doing that. And so you're basically going to be immortal. Well, of course, one of the test subjects steals a batch of this stuff and takes it to a rival company and also sells it on the black market. So it gets out there in the public and the world just goes nuts with it. Mm-hmm. Some of the repercussions are there are some white supremacists that spray it on people of color to turn them white. Oh, <laughs> of course. Um, the military, uh, well, the government wants it for spying reasons because you can imagine how it would that would work. Um, the military can um, spray enemy soldiers and turn them into toddlers and defeat them. So that would uh, let's see if there's anything else. Yeah, those are there's other some re- other repercussions too. And of course, poor Lyle because he touched the first batch. There ends up being thousands and thousands of clones of him, and he is wanted by everybody to try to work on this formula some more and he's kind of in hiding and there's a lot of adventure and running Wait, and all this kind of I, stuff. I'm not sure I follow because when a person uses this lotion, do they turn into the last person that touched it or does, there, yes. does another person appear? Like, no, they turn into the last person that touched into, it. Do they get their thoughts and everything? No, just physically. Oh, just physically. Okay. Only physically. So that's the advantage of it. You can be you know, 70 years old and uh, you can have some famous beauty model. You can use the lotion that she last touched and you'll end up having her body, but oh. you still have your own brain and your own thoughts and memories and all that kind of stuff. Oh, I can see identity <laughs> theft angles here. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there are some thieves who use it, some criminals who clone themselves. And, yeah. yeah, they go commit crimes and then they clone themselves back to the way they were before. So there's all kinds of stuff going on. I really enjoyed the book. I thought it was an interesting concept and it, it kept my attention to the end. But the ending was was pretty bad and kind of disappointing. I thought it was kind of a cop out and I didn't like uh, the ending. You mean at the all. world didn't end or what? They didn't really tell you if the world ended, but the main characters, I'll go ahead and give it away because you know, the main characters end up on a sneaking off to an island because they're thinking the world is coming to an end. And they get to this island and there's people there who are half animals, half people. And they at first think this couple are gods. And then they're like, oh, this couple's afraid of us. So they must not be gods. Attack. And that's pretty much the end. So you don't even know if they survived or how these people got that way. or. Yeah, it's almost like he got tired of it and just decided to end it. Oh, it's over. Yeah, yeah. I've, done all, I've yeah. done all I can think of with it. So. Exactly. Yeah, I, I could have. I mean, I'm not even an author, and I could think of better endings than this. But what was it called? It's called Extreme Makeover by okay. Dan Wells. It's about 14 hours and a oh, bit of change. Oh goodness, cake. it's long enough. Oh, yeah. now, see, I think of that as being short. <laughs> I don't no, mind. But, no, but I meant I don't mind long. But to have that ending, you've put all oh, that time yeah. in and. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd be curious to see how many other people thought the ending was as bad as I did, but yeah. Mm, see? Yeah, cool. So, anyway, that was mine for the month. Whoa. Well, I reread, I, well, I haven't finished it yet, but I know how it turns out, but I'm not going to spoil it, even though it's a, over, it's almost 70 years old. But I reread The City and the Stars this month that I haven't read in decades. And uh, it was kind of a nostalgia trip. I love this book and I like it just as much as I did the first time I read it or the second, I've, I've read it like two or three times over the last 50 years. Um, I, or yeah, 50, it's 2022. And I read it back uh, when I was 12. Um, and it hit me a lot, of course, back then being 12. I mean, this is just, I just, thought it was awesome of course i can't get buckley coslow's reading anymore but um i kind of miss that um but i got a braille version from bookshare and it's about a, uh it takes place about a billion years in the future for people who haven't read it i maybe some people haven't read it yet um and it's in the city of diaspar which is the last remaining human city but it's it has technology that's pretty much magical by our standards. Um, this is at the far end of human history, and humans have retreated to Earth after what they call the invaders drove them out of the rest of the galaxy, and uh, Earth was defended, uh, or the invaders let humanity stay on Earth as long as they didn't come back out into space. This was so long ago Um you know, there are legends that have come down and people aren't even sure how much of it's true. Um, but there's the city of Diaspar where this guy named Alvin is uh, growing up. He's about 20 or so. And but um, I mean, they have all kinds of stuff to keep people, you know, uh, to fill up your life with. They, you know, they've got art and they've got, you know, advanced math. And these people are really, really smart. Um but he, but, and they have these VR adventures, you know, they call them sagas. And, but you can't tell the difference between that and reality. It's so advanced. 
but he's always looking for uh, what's over the next, you know, what's over the next mountain range and what's outside of the city. And there's a deep psychological inhibition about leaving the city. And so nobody wants to do that except him. And he finds out that um, the way it works is since they're so, you know, this is like a billion years, the central computer has uh, all these people, the inhabitants of the city in memory and it recreates them every, you know, 100,000 years or a couple of hundred thousand years. And they, um, so they live a full life and then they decide what memories they want to take with them. And then, you know, in a hundred thousand years or whatever, they come back and then they, uh, when they're about 20 or 25, they start regaining their memories of their older lives and they just go on with their next life. But he is a unique he is uh, one of only 14. They told him there were 14 before him. So he's the 15th, who is actually unique. The, the central computer uh, created him or, or the planners who set up the whole system, create these unique individuals. And they uh, they want to leave. They want to see what's over the, you know, they want to see what's outside the city. They want to uh, go out and. So he does find a way to leave the city. Um, it, it, uh, he has help from uh, someone in the city who doesn't actually want to leave, but um, he's uh, one of the things that the planners uh, created uh, was someone called a jester who, you know, so the city doesn't get too stagnant. He he upsets the order of things in minor ways, like he stops all the moving sidewalks or uh, stuff like that and causes a bit of chaos every now and then. And he knows a little bit more about, he has some privileges, you know, that most people don't have with regard to how the city works. So he helps Alvin find a way out. He didn't know about it himself, but he knew um, he could access, uh, he had a way of accessing the city's older memories and he found, so Alvin leaves the city and he finds this train that's underground that there's only one destination and it's this community called Lees, L-Y-S. I remember Buckley Coslow actually spelled it. I'm not sure why. Um, but, um, so he goes to this community and he meets these people and they're different. They live in a more rural environment. Uh, they live in kind of small villages and, you know, they, but they've got, they've got technology when they need it, but they don't have, you know, they don't have the technology. They don't use it to the extent that um, uh, the people in Diaspar use it. And uh, this was back when psychic powers were more a part of, harder science fiction than they are now the machines can read thoughts they you can actually think at the machines in diaspar and um and have them do your bidding now the people in lees they actually have actual telepathy between themselves and they can join together and do things um together and uh the reason that's important is because and they can, of course, play with people's memories and stuff. And it turns out gradually that we find out what happened to the previous uniques because they want to do to Alvin what they did to the previous uniques. They either stay there or they, they don't want Diaspar to know about Lee's. They want to keep their culture separate. 
And so they want to, um, once he's gone there and he decides if he doesn't want to stay, they want to change his memory so that, that uh, he has, uh, he has a, a misadventure and he doesn't really find anything outside and he comes back to Diaspar and is happy because he doesn't think there was anything out there to find. And, but he doesn't want to do that. So he finds a way of avoiding that. Um, and the way he, well, I'm not going to tell you how he does it because that's kind of interesting. What happens is that he and the son of one of the village leaders, uh, go exploring and they find these creatures that have been around for eons. They're waiting for, they have this religion and they're waiting for the great ones to return. They call them, these are advanced beings who supposedly left uh, there was an interstellar war and they were supposed to be uh, going to be returning at some point. And one of them is a really advanced robot and he can, he was able to communicate with this robot and they, I'm, I'm going to skip over things because um, I don't want to get too bogged down in all the details, but they find a ship and they explore some of the worlds and they don't find any people anywhere out in, you know, they, you know, they explore several worlds and one of them is just all life. I mean, the whole thing's covered with plants. Even the oceans have this carpet of, you know, plants all over them and um, anything that touches the ground, you know, gets absorbed immediately. And then there's another one with all buildings and stuff like kind of like Trantor reminded me a little bit. Um, for those of you who've read the foundation series, that's kind of what Trantor was. It was a planetary city. There was not much, you know, rural about it. And so, but they meet someone, I think I'll stop there. Um, the goal that Alvin wants to do basically and he has this like impulsion and you know he wants to get humanity out of its shell so to speak because you know the the inhabitants of diaspora are kind of see you know they're sealed into their city they don't want to leave at all they're afraid to leave and the people of lees you know they don't want to mix with any other cultures and they have no interest in changing their culture either really he wants to get humanity back on, you know, back involved in going out into space and all that stuff. And of course, I guess it's not too much of a spoiler to say that he does succeed. Obviously, um, it wouldn't be, you know, I don't think it would be a, uh, a Clark book. I didn't even say it was by Arthur C. Clark, did I? For people who don't know. <laughs> uh, but it is. It was one of his classics back from 1953 or 54, whenever it was. It was either before or shortly after he wrote uh, Childhood's End. Uh, he was mainlining Cosmic back then. Um, he really was. Um, because there's, a, there's kind of a mind in this book, not like the overmind in Childhood's End, but it's it's much less mature, much less mature, but it's still really advanced, you know, compared to humanity. Um, but it's a really great book. I enjoyed it a lot. It's it's kind of like you know, humanity coming back out into the world, into you know, into space and into the universe. Is it on Bard or just? Oh yeah, it's on Bard. It's read by uh, 
Melissa Maroney. Is that her name? Um, I didn't read that version. They had the, they, this is the third narration Bard has had. The first uh -huh. one was Buckley Coslow, which was one I read. Then they had one from uh, some British woman whose name I just forgot, um, which was on the 8 RPM uh, version. Um, I can't remember her name now. Um, and now this one's the third one. Um, Mo, Melissa Maroney or Marissa. I can't remember. Um, but I didn't read that when I read the, um, I'm reading the bookshare version in Braille. It's from a publisher. It's directly from the publisher. So it's in good shape. So, uh, well, that's it. I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to say more about the details. Um, it's kind of like um, it's it's um, it's really good um, if you like that far future kind of stuff. Not all far future stuff is good. One of the worst books I ever read was a far future book um, called A Billion Days of Earth by Doris DeSercha. And I pitied I, had, I, I really my heart really went out to John Stratton, uh, who had to read it. Um, <laughs> I mean, he did get paid, but. Um, he certainly didn't get paid enough to read that. Um, but anyhow, uh, but I do like that kind of thing. And this was really, it's a good book. It's, um, I like the, um, um, I like that kind of thing. And I read this a long time ago. Yeah. Evan, if you recommend a book and then we read it for next month, would that matter if we were to give our opinion of what you've already, you know, talked about? No, I don't think so. I mean, we've done that before, haven't oh, we? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I read uh, I read that book that um, Roger, uh, what was that called? The uh, Peter Benchley, the one with um, the one with the Nazi scientist who was oh about um, that. Oh yeah, uh, I, that was yeah, that was good. That was yeah, good. I read, but, that was good. I, I read that. Yeah, book. didn't he that write was, Jaws? Yeah, he wrote Jaws. This was not Jaws. This was a different book, and I can't remember the title of it. I have it in my list. About that shark, the shark yep. that was invented by. I think you mean white shark. White shark. That was it. Right. Yeah, that right. was it. Uh, so yeah, you can read something, and then uh, yeah, okay. you can read something and uh, talk about it the next month, and because if you have a different opinion, people will like to hear it. Right. Um, and of course, you should have the same opinion, of course. But if you don't, you know, it's all right. It's a free country. Um, At least so far. <laughs> but uh, so far, right yeah. For how long so, uh, huh? but uh, that's it. That's my book. I love this book. I think it's fabulous. Well, I liked it, it just as much as I did, you know, when I read it uh, a long time. I wonder ago. how long it is on Bard. How many hours? About I don't know. It was seven. It was what was it like? It's about. I don't know, eight or nine hours. I forget. Oh, yeah, I, don't, I don't remember it being not excessively long. long, but it's been a long time since I read it. It's not that long. All not right. I long. think I'll take a quick run the bar and see if I can find it and add it to my wish list. All righty. Okay. <laughs> well, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yeah, uh, you the, too. What, the next meeting of the Science Fiction Club will be on Thursday, December 8th, 2022.